my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Greetings and welcome to another great episode of our Black Gay Diaspora podcast. I am your host, Eric, and today I am joined by Rob Berkeley, founder and managing editor at BlackoutUK.com, which is, quote, a not-for-profit social enterprise run and owned by a volunteer collective of Black gay men, end quote. Its mission is to recognize and celebrate the diversity and experiences and views among Black queer men in the UK. Rob is also a writer who contributed to the 2014 anthology Black and Gay in the UK, and his piece is titled The Brotherhood Dilemma. Described as an educationalist with interest in media, creativity, and the arts, Rob has a desire to disrupt power dynamics for the betterment of those on the margins of society. I look forward to learning more about Blackout UK and also what fuels Rob's passion for lifting up himself and others. Greetings, Rob, and welcome. How are you? I'm very well. It's really good to be here. I'm really excited to to have this conversation with you. I've known about you for probably pretty much since the beginning of this platform. I'm excited and a little nervous, but I always say when the nerves are there, that's a sign that I'm really into what you're doing and also just to to have this this type of connection. So uh, yeah, we're recording midweek. How's your week so far? It's been going quickly. I've been trying to kind of stand back from the social media for a, for a couple of weeks, unsuccessfully so far. So um Hopefully, uh, we'll get a bit more of a rest as the as the week goes on. Okay, I of course have been you know doing my due diligence, finding out more about you and what you do. And I like your Instagram post or your Instagram description. You're described as a thinker, a writer, organizer, and dreamer. But I'd like to ask you, which one would those who know you best describe you? Oh, those who know me best, probably as a thinker, thinking requires action. So I suppose I'm, I'm uh, interested in how we establish a relationship between what we think and what we do. Sometimes I, I describe myself as a, a recovering academic because I never felt the luxury of debating how many angels could dance on a, the head of a pin. <laughs> and, and it was a practical question. So I wanted to kind of engage with leading edge thoughts, but but thinking about what that means for, for activity. So with being a recovering academic, were you like a professor? I did my PhD. I then ran a racial justice think tank. So I spent quite a lot of time in those kind of policy spaces and writing about identity, politics and uh, education, which is my, uh, my first love, I guess. I moved in academic circles, I guess, and I wrote in academic journals. But I, I, I'm keen now to be uh, engaged in activity with, that changes the world. What's your educational background? So I did a, my first degree in politics, philosophy, economics uh, at Oxford, followed by 
and Martin Luther Cage and then a PhD, uh, looking at our school systems thrive on the exclusion uh, of a certain group uh, of young people. Okay. When you started university, were you very clear what direction you were going to go in as far as not just your scholastic career, but also where you would go professionally? I think when I went to, when I started at Oxford, I it still intended to be a Roman Catholic priest. It's hmm. an interesting tidbit. <laughs> yeah. Now, I know you're British, but are you currently based in the UK? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm, I currently live about, oh, all of five miles from where I grew up. So I'm a South Londoner. Uh, my parents are still there. My parents are from Grenada. I'm the youngest of, the youngest of seven. So by the time they got to me, they were pretty expert parents, I think. <laughs> and, uh, and I got it quite easy. I, you know, the, the, uh, the lucky last child. You've nicked a wound. I'm the oldest. Ah. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the tester child. <laughs> the pioneer. Right? Oh, I hadn't thought of that. I'm going to use that with my siblings. I'm the pioneer. <laughs> 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 yeah, thank you for sharing that. So with Blackout UK, could you explain what Blackout UK is? So it starts with a really simple idea. Actually, it starts from, I want to start an organization to save my life. And that's really what we're trying to do at Blackout. I was, what, 25 years into a career in civil society, working with charities, working on public policy. And at no point had I seen work with my peers, with black queer men, that was valued by those men or valued by the organizations that were delivering it. I wanted there to be better. And I wanted to use what privilege I had stored up for people that I cared about. So when did you start or when did you found Blackout UK? You, you mentioned the Black and Gay in the UK book. I think at, at that point I had come up with the name and announced in, in my article that our response to the brotherhood dilemma ought to be to create spaces in which we could practice brotherhood. Our first articles went up on the website in 2015, 16, and in 2018, I left BBC to work on it uh, pretty much full time. So this is currently your main professional endeavor? It's, it's more than just a, a kind of professional endeavor, I think. I think, it, I think it feels to me like this is the work I will do, and sometimes I'll be paid for it, and sometimes I'll be able to call it a job and sometimes I won't. What is it that expression if you find something that you will do for free that's probably your vocation or your what you're meant to do? I'm hoping that we'll get to the point soon where there'll be a, a team of staff and people will be able to call black out their their job. I like that you said that you started it because it was a need but of course connected to you spreading it out and how it sounds like to, to create a community. Yeah. I mean, I suppose I, I, I'm, I was looking for my tribe in a, in a really kind of simple manner and, and had been 
for as long as I could remember and had spent a couple of decades kind of immersed in the racial justice politics of the UK and not found my tribe there. So not found a political tribe, but also not found people that were willing to accept me in all my diversity, in all my, in all my parts. Done things like been chaired the NAS project, I've been on the board of Stonewall. I was engaged in the kind of work around HIV, changing policy uh, around LGBT rights, LGB rights as it was at the time, and still not found people that I felt a, a real strong affinity with. And I'm still, I guess, building that tribe. Okay, just kind of absorbing that. Are you aware of attempts before Blackout UK of others attempting to do something similar? I'm not sure how similar, but there certainly have been attempts to organise, uh, attempts to bring people together. I, I think what marks marks Blackout from those attempts has been its focus on centering the lived experience of Black women rather than an agenda. You know, the last 40 years has been you know, typified by the activity around HIV AIDS. Uh, really important work, really crucial work. But there hadn't been, as far as I could tell, efforts to build community assets. So I looked around and thought, well, what do we own together? What could we say it's a legacy of, in terms of what we're giving to the next generation? Now, do you host or do you sponsor other events? I still see Blackout, certainly up to now, as, as, a, as a laboratory, as a kind of, as an experimenter trying to find the thing that works for the most people that becomes sustainable. So we've held a range of different events. Some of them have been taken on by other organizations now and been emulated and improved upon, and, and that's great. So we hosted uh, Black Men Who Brunch, which was our attempt to do day-long kind of workshop that started in us breaking bread together sharing skills in the afternoon into some music and, and some uh, and more social end of the day. Allowing us to talk about some of our challenges around mental health or domestic violence, but also enabling us to connect with each other and find a way of getting to know each other. We've also held club nights and, and used the dance floor too. And we've uh, held what we hope will become an annual lecture in honour of Berto Pasuka, who founded the first European black dance company and was a Jamaican queer man. Thank you for bringing up Men Who Brunch. I've also been following them, but I wasn't sure if you were connected to them. I suppose at all, all times, Blackout is seeking to, to stand alongside other black women. In this day and age, actually, that's a, that's a real challenge because we're pitted against each other and posed against each other as a, you know, uh, you can get the most clicks on, on the social media stuff. What I'm interested in is, is how do we create a civil society that can hold us, uh, that can, can support us and that can lead us from survival uh, to thriving. Mm. I've heard from quite a few people throughout the world, you know, it's not unique to you know, us black queer men, but because of social media and the ease of 
dating on the apps that we've kind of lost quite a few of our community spaces. You talk about the loss of space, but a lot of those spaces from you know, places like the Market Tavern or, or even Heaven have been exploitative of black people uh, and we've never held the keys. We've been pitted against each other in those spaces rather than allowed to collaborate. So maybe if we're clever enough and motivated enough, we can learn from uh, from that and and try and create some of those spaces. And that's that's currently what I'm working on. 150 years ago in London, there were 400 gentlemen's clubs, and they were used largely uh, by the elites to to run the country and to run the empire. We're working with Westminster City Council to see if we can, for six months, revive. Uh, one of those clubs and uh, subvert it and, and have black women uh, set the agenda at it. We can hold space for the rest of society rather than always being the guest. Okay. I can tell you're a writer and a thinker just in your language and your words. <laughs> Certain things you say, I'm like, that's a really great quote and uh, a different way to, to say something. But when you mention about us being more than just visiting a space or or an event or even a period of time in the larger communities, at the weekend it was it was Black Pride in London. The success of that event is that it feels like it has a potential for shared ownership amongst people of color in a way that, however, walking a in the Pride, Pride London Parade, it still feels like we're guests of that, uh, rather than owning it. The power that comes from sharing ownership to extend beyond a kind of 12 hours in the park dancing around to music. You know, we could do more than that. I uh, had a nice surprise in looking at things that you're connected to, and I really like your YouTube series from a few years ago. It's, uh, it's a hashtag speechless series. I'll be honest, those hit me. <laughs> yeah, and I'm definitely going to share those on my social media, but can you tell us about that series? We wanted a really simple model to enable us to, to spark conversation. I think, I think our byline at that time was join the conversation by just talking about this notion of what it feels like to always, to lack verification of, of your peers. Not approval necessarily, but just racism is so insidious. It's really difficult to disentangle whether you're experiencing racism or whether you're just not liked. Many people will be in an office somewhere and they'll say, well, you know, that person, never, me and him never really got on. And until, you're, until you can find another black person to connect with and have a conversation with, you can't know whether that is because that person has no antipathy towards black people. I got to the point, I feel, where I was, I mean, I was thinking these thoughts, trying to reinterpret what some of the elders had written for now, but not having a space in which I could check in with people. The invitation is open for others to do the same. So... There are four or five of, of me, but uh, also uh, contributions from Antoine Rogers or, or Phil Samba. And I 
would like when we get back to uh, producing more media to, to see more of those. It's well produced. It looks really nice. And what you say in it just is, is very relatable, even though we're both from two different countries and, and backgrounds. If it's okay, there were a couple of things I wanted to quote from that. Uh, the one, one of them was from the first one, which is sex, masculinity, and racism. And this one hit me, I'll say, on a visceral level when you said, you know, quote, to be a Black man represents in the minds of the powerful, the hypermasculine. The powerful, in turn, fear this form of masculinity and seek to punish you for it. Um, yeah, I, I felt that one. Yeah, I think I'm back with these these questions again, really, about how is it that we have a conversation about masculinity in a space in which there is so much vitriol about gender? I think black queer men have a have a particular access to perspectives on that we never really hear. So I just know that there have been many occasions uh, since my kind of first uh, in- engagement with, with London's queer scene where I've been used as a way of emphasising a particular model of patriarchal manhood that I hadn't signed up, to, up for. And when I challenge that, it's quite easy because of my, my black and therefore marginal status to move me out of the picture. So I'm not sure yet that we have the spaces that are sustainable, that we can have conversations in which we grow about how we rethink and reframe masculinity away from patriarchy. And that's a shame because we need it. You know, even out walking today in Cape Town in South Africa and being aware when I'm out and to this, this, this quote, like, like I'm aware that the way I walk sometimes when I come across certain individuals is I'm a part of this space too. And I don't want to be um, minimized because of who you think you see. That first video is filmed in, in Soho. Um, I have this real memory of my 20s where I would be openly gay in Zone 1 of London. And by the time I got to outer London, where, I, where my parents lived, I wouldn't, on that bus ride, somehow fold myself up into a, in somebody who could pass. I'm still healing from the, the damage I would do to myself on those bus rides, on those night bus rides, trying to protect myself from dealing with the ways in which patriarchal masculinity was constraining my ability to be free. And I watch a whole very useful generation of men still hankering after the, the guy's DL, still trying to, uh, trying to avoid looking at themselves in the mirror for fear that they might see something which uh, doesn't fit with that idea of patriarchy that, that's doing them no good. That's a very powerful visual. I saw like the crow, was it the Cro-Magnon? It starts crawling or whatever, and then up to who we are today. And the way you just visualize it, it's the reverse. It's like I'm my more authentically myself, say in a gay space or a black gay space, 
And then when I move going to, yeah, I, I really, that was powerful. Yeah. I, that's, I could see that like cinematically how we just slowly just start. Yeah. And, and, and some ways it feel like a kind of, like a flower that would close, close on itself. Yeah. There was also a similar shift where I didn't want to be too black in, in seven. My first experience of going to a gay space in Soho was to be questioned about whether I qualified. This is a gay club. Do you know what kind of club this is? The first person that I vocally came out to was a bouncer in a nightclub. He challenged whether I was gay enough to get into a, a club called GAY. There's a range in how we present or how I perceive that even just in my own life is it I sometimes wonder if similar to being hyper masculine there's this desire with those in positions of power or authority to say um, to the reverse of that you're more palatable to me if you're hyper feminine or less threatening I don't know I think that's the trap right? the, the trap is to is to concede there are ways of your being that attract more respect than others and therefore becomes a, a form of control. The energy that we put into, into not being ourselves, into denying our, our full potential is energy wasted. We're talking about things that are sources of conflict or pain, but in um, you doing this series, because it's another person, a, a black gay man. So for me, it gives me the courage to say, oh, I have those experiences too. Therefore, I'm going to find ways to to be my most authentic self. So yeah, I appreciate that. And then also, I think it was in the second video, and I really like this, what you said, scared that I'd open my mouth and overshare. This one hits me. <laughs> so um, I shared nothing and shut myself down. So I really liked that you put that on film. I was one of those guys who would rehearse the conversation that I should have had for the hour on the bus on the way home, or, the, <laughs> or you know. Um, and my, my, my mother does it still. Actually, she, she she will get off the phone and then recount. Well, I should have said this. I wouldn't say that next time. I'm going to say this. I would have said. I should have said. If I was me, I would have said. It's about talking myself down. There's too much, too much joy to be had to spend time denigrating myself. I had developed some, got some tactics around the ways in which I would not speak in spaces, the ways in which I would try and ensure that uh, I was policing other people's racism in space mm. without ever shouting because I don't want to be perceived as a crazy black woman. That that view is gendered in that way. I found a way of speaking, almost a cadence, which was harder to interrupt, but also wasn't loud. While this would work in a kind of seminar room space in which, it, you know, which is a lot of my policy influencing work, it's really bad for television. The rhythms don't really work in that, in that kind of space. So, but I realise now that that was all part of my avoidance of 
being seen. Yeah, well. <laughs> but I suppose, you know, the other end of that understanding, we are incredibly imaginative, intuitive, and, and, and smart in some ways about avoidance. And that's put me in really good stead for the work with Blackout because I see people circling that offer of brotherhood, that, that suggestion of if I was to lean in and support this thing, it would support me back. And I want that. Just I'm not sure yet I could deal with it yet. One of the things I'm really keen that Blackout does is, is the easiest thing for it to do, which is just to continue to be there. Because I understand the way in which we're socialised to avoid intimacy, to avoid the things that we, that we know are good for us. Do you think the masculinity that we've been talking about, specifically in Black communities globally, is more rigid than in other communities, other ethnic communities? I'm, no, I, I don't think it is. I, I think I, I think when I visited Ethiopia and saw men walking down, down the street hand in hand in the 90s, seeing people dance with wild abandon to the Barbara Tucker singing from the States, I would see masculinity that I recognised, but in both those situations. Just not the masculinity that was represented to me by our media or in spaces in which black men thought the rest of the world might be looking. As somebody who at the age of 16 danced in Grenada for carnival, covered in oil, in a group of 50 semi-naked men dancing through the streets of this Caribbean island, I can see that our masculinities can do all sorts of all sorts of things. But the front that we need to put on to resist the racist gaze, I think, limits what we're prepared to share. And hence, I think, why I've, why I've often pushed for spaces where black queer men are at the centre, because I, I think it frees up our ability to be honest about the range of masculinities that we're presented with that are traditional to black communities. Like I always say, you know, we've had these huge social legal advances for, you know, black communities and for LGBT communities, but I feel that we're still in the shadows. And so what you're doing is, is giving, I think, well, me, the courage to say, yeah, it's either say it or don't say it. One of the founding thoughts uh, around Blackout was, why is it that we aren't turning up to receive the services that are being offered? Why is it that we aren't turning up for each other? We've maybe seen what's possible, but are scared of, of our potential or what it might mean to actually live it full time. I think I shared with you the first time we connected a couple of months ago, Black and Gay in the UK, I purchased that book not when it came out, but probably within a year of it coming out when I was still living in Los Angeles. And it was literally timing that when we connected initially, I was at the tail end of, of the series and I was like, oh, wait a minute. 
I know that name. <laughs> Your piece is, is one that definitely, definitely stood out to me, especially because you touched on the challenges that we as Black gay men face, as we've talked about with racism, homophobia, but also our interactions with other Black gay men. And your scene was very vivid when you talked about being in the bar and, and another Black man can rebuff a perceived advance. And, you know, I've had that experience. But how was it for you revealing these these types of experiences that we can have? I had the, the privilege of coming to London after having come out in Oxford and having been one of three, four black men regularly on that on that scene. Right? So the sociologist in me is, is 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 fascinated by how groups work. So what happens what happens to us as black men? So there's a hundred people at a reception, a kind of professional reception, work reception, and there are five black men. Would those five men avoid each other all night or find each other? I've been in rooms where both of those things have happened. I've been in rooms where I've been the disruptor who's, who's grabbed the five men and, and, <laughs> and stood them together in the middle of the room and said, well, actually, we're allowed to do this. I thought I might have some insights to bring from that experience of being hyper-marginalised to what I thought was just an amazing experience of being upstairs in heaven on a Wednesday night with, you know, 200 other black men dancing or, or to be at Bootie Licious. And then people telling me that they, they weren't connecting with each other. I just couldn't get my head around it. it, was, it was, for me, that was the kind of nirvana that we wanted to, uh, to reach when, when the, the four or five of us in Oxford actually did finally start to speak. And again, to discover that we were being objectified by the same men, that we were being confused for each other constantly, that we were living in a racist city. But we need to check in with each other to find that out. Yeah, that's uh, something I, I'm glad that social media is around because, say, online dating became socially acceptable. And I remember going on a, a coffee meetup with the guy who wasn't Black and... At the time, I was my glasses were still a little bit rose-colored, like, oh, we're just people. But that was the first experience where I was very clear that I was not really seen for who I was, but it was just kind of like a plug in the numbers, you know, you're, you're Black, therefore, I don't care what your thought process is, or even if you're attracted to me. <laughs> and, but how we take those little crumbs of recognition and sometimes maybe... I would have to be conscious of not uh, using those tools against each other. And the, the misunderstanding of our culture, our heritage, our complex relationship with our blackness and the ability by others to reduce that to, to a fetish, to a, a costume that you might wear or, you know, or, or something which you could spend 50 quid on in clone zone and, and dress up as for one night. That's not what we bring when we bring our, our blackness to, to any relationship, even if it's, uh, even if it's casual um, or just physical. That's the reduction because people very much see and use colour in those spaces to uh, 
I, I like a costume that could be put on and taken off. I think I've seen some, some really large steps taken in the last 10 years to start to discuss more openly the levels of objectification in our most intimate moments, in our most personal moments that we suffer. These still aren't conversations that I think uh, that we get comfortable having. They're often conversations that are left to our poets or performers to present rather than fit into any kind of dialogue. With organizations like Blackout UK and discussions, as you mentioned, are there other ways us as Black queer men can heal or start that process? I hope so. I'm in the process. I, I really admire the work of uh, Yellow Achille. He was somehow finding a way into those kind of conversations that made that, that seem necessary. At Black Many Brunch, we spent at least six months working with a digital health specialist. And I still don't think we managed to break into some into conversations about mental health or healing that were anything more than kind of markers that at some point we're going to have to deal with this healing thing. You know, I take that as progress. But I wonder whether there's something about, there's something about London, a kind of British sense of reserve, maybe. I'm really open to, to exploring with folk about how we start to break into some of those conversations about how we can be vulnerable with each other, but also how we can uh, emerge from that feeling supported. You are inspiring others, finding ways to inspire others. Who, past or present, inspires you? Oh, all people who were leading work when I arrived out in London trying to do work. So Mark Thompson and Dennis Carney and, and Walter Gilgower. And we're immersed in a, in, a, in a sector working on HIV that I admire them for having the patience to, to, to live with and, and, and deal with. All those things we put up with, all those little microaggressions, all those daily slights that we, we experience, hopefully the, those who follow us don't have to experience them. Yeah, so I, I admire all those guys for, for, for that work. But I also, people like Derg Arbor Richards, who, who were publishing Black queer poetry in the 80s, and people that would open their homes on a Friday for a meal and allow community to form. Those are the footsteps in which I, I, I walk. Uh, that's, that's the inspiration. Can we feel like we have a place to call home, a community that is our, that we can rely on, even if it's just for one night of the week. That meal, or opening up the home, I felt warmth and definitely intimacy. Those of us who are in, in any position of, of having the networks or experience to create some social change already can really create a platform for the, for, certainly for the next generation to, to go to the stars. Right? Thank you. Yeah, thank you for this this talk, this interview. Thank you for sharing your experiences and your expertise. Do you have any final thoughts or insights? I'm really keen to do what I can, but I don't know what I can do yet. Uh, and I'm still learning. Let's work together. There is a, a real bonus in coming together on the journey uh, as well as at the destination.
you just reminded me one more time that you're you're a writer and a thinker with that. So, <laughs> but um, where can we uh, engage with you online? So BLK OUT UK. Uh, it's either on Instagram, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Facebook. And we have a website, blkoutuk.com. And for those in the UK, we have a mobile app community, uh, which we're growing intentionally slowly. Uh, And that's a blackout hub, so blkout hub, hub.com. It's about communication, it's about relationships. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.